Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister says it's up to the provinces to make businesses pay for sick leave. The Deputy Prime Minister is working directly uh, with the province of Ontario to ensure uh, that the right supports get there uh, for people as quickly as possible. Uh, as we've said, uh, we are there to help Canadians. We have people's backs. Uh, we need to work together and provinces uh, need to look at the way to deliver uh, sick leave through directly through employers, which the federal government can't do. Aaron O'Toole says he's looking closely at mandatory voting laws. Some people look to Australia, uh, a similar parliamentary democracy, with, with their approach with respect to mandatory voting. It comes up occasionally, so we're in listening mode. We haven't announced any policy whatsoever. And Derek Sloan faces charges under Ontario's Reopening Act. But it's not fair that, you know, for some protests, the Premier and others say, oh yeah, it's great, it's, it's great to do that. And then when other people are protesting the very measures that the government is implementing, somehow that's awful. It's Wednesday, April 28th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks for the call, Mark. And I'm fascinated by how the debate and discussion over sick leave, over paid sick leave, has started developing, particularly in Ontario. Uh, I've been wondering for some time whether there will be any kind of lasting policy change that arises out of the pandemic. Uh, Some people have been talking about a universal basic income that doesn't seem to have gained enough traction yet for it to be one of the legacies of this time. Uh, But in Ontario, they're looking at paid sick leave. It's turned into a bit of a back-and-forth battle with the federal government, some some rhetoric there. Uh, It arose out of the fact that I think Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, was looking for something to kind of get back on solid footing after a disastrous couple of weeks where he had to reverse course on some decisions related to the lockdown. But what do you think about that discussion and, and how it's evolving? Well, it's uh, a very Canadian situation. Um, you know, just uh, you, you made an interesting point there. Will there be lasting uh, changes, you know, legislation and, and um, you know, public policy changes? I think that is inevitable, Marka. I think we are going to see permanent, lasting changes. And frankly, I'd be deeply disappointed if we don't. I mean, if we go through this hellish situation that's gone on for over a year now, 24,000 dead Canadians, I mean, and don't come out with something that is meant to protect people right across the spectrum, you know, their health and their economic health, um, then it'll be a terrible failure uh, on all levels of government. I mean, I, I think there are learnings here. Uh, for every level of government and to learn what was done right and what's been done wrong. Now, it also seems to me obvious that in a country like Canada, with its immense wealth and its um, commitment to uh, the social safety net, uh, the welfare state, so to speak, that there isn't some protection uh, for all workers uh, when they get sick. And, uh, you know, all of us have gone, dragged our butts into work when we're not feeling well and things like that. That shouldn't take place anymore. Uh, you know, when I managed a newsroom with uh, over 100 people in it in those days, um, I used to dread, 
you know, flu season because of a couple of people would get sick and then you'd, you'd have a whole outbreak, you know, and it was very tough to manage things. And we had sick leave. We had company, you know, provided yeah. sick leave. There's insurance for this sort of thing that employers can also avail themselves of. So right now we have Doug Ford and to a lesser extent, John Horgan, the premier of BC, both blaming Ottawa for not, uh, uh, you know, having a well laid out uh, sick leave plan and, and where there's actually a lot of things they can do on their own. Yeah, and, and um, it, it seems inherently unfair and counterproductive that, that people who are sick, who are unlucky enough to be sick, would feel pressure to go to work. And it doesn't uh, help anyone if they do, other than the fact that they get paid and their families don't lose that income. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. And, and again, there is lots of back and forth between the federal government and the provincial government. So I'm curious about whether this becomes a, a public policy discussion or more of a political football. Well, it has to be public policy. And, and I think there's a stigma there that we have to get past as a society, that every time someone gets sick and stays home and lies on the couch and watches, uh, you know, Netflix all day, that is not a sign of moral, uh, you know, in, uh, moral lacking. You know, it's not a sign of moral uh, turpitude to take a day off when you're sick. And I think a universal program and universal acceptance of that will make people see this. I mean, is there something in the sort of Doug Ford conservative, uh, sort of right-wing way of looking at the world that basically sees all workers as a bunch of lazy bums who are only there if they're, uh, you know, kind of forced to work. And that's not the case. People like to work. They want to do their part. They want to share the burdens, and they want to get the benefits. And they want it to be done equally. And as a society, we shouldn't be penalizing people who, who get sick especially when there's a payoff for society, and that is keeping sick people away from the healthy people so that business can carry on uh, in a normal fashion. All right, let's talk about mandatory voting. Uh, the Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, was, was musing about that yesterday. Um, what do you think about that and, and why he's talking about it? Well, I mean, this is an idea whose time has not come in Canada. Uh, you know, we there's so many things that could be done to improve uh, democratic uh, accountability and and representation for people. I mean, proportional representation or or different uh, versions of that, I think, should get a serious airing in this country. I mean. Uh, there's, you know, this is one of the reasons we have low, to, low voter turnout is that people often in the minority parties uh, feel that their votes just go to waste in the first-past-the-post system, which, as we will all recall, was a liberal promise of reform in past elections that has just gone by the board. So, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, and ma- mandatory voting... Uh, if you're using Australia as the uh, example, uh, I think people should spend a little more time following Australian politics because they would see how idiotic it is there, as often it is, if not more than here, how unstable their governments actually are, and how much power that still resides within the parliamentary caucuses uh, that exist in their system. And mandatory voting hasn't done one thing to remedy any of that. 
you know, we should do everything we can to get people out to vote, especially at municipal and provincial levels. I mean, municipal elections are suffering terribly from lack of turnout. But I don't think mandating a law that everybody has to turn out and vote is going to solve that problem, other than we would inflate the numbers of people who really don't care and only show up and, and mark, you know, for Daffy Duck on their on their ballot just so they don't, you know, remain in jeopardy of some sort of a fine. Right. Um, I mean, I don't think the Conservatives are ever going to adopt this as a policy, and it's just one of those, uh, you know, when you're in opposition, you can air a lot of ideas and get them kicked around and just hope that, you know, one of them attracts the crowd, and that's the one you'd follow up. Not as, This is leading from the back, uh, Mark, not leading from the front. All right, let's talk for a moment about the latest we know uh, about the allegations against General Jonathan Vance and who knew what and when. The Prime Minister said yesterday nobody in his office knew that the allegation made was a, quote, Me Too complaint. But uh, Global News is saying it has documents that raise questions about that. What What do you think about this? Well, I, you know, the whole Prime Minister's office response to the allegations of misconduct at the upper reaches of the Canadian Armed Forces is really a mess. It's chaotic. It's unbelievable. Uh, you know, there, somebody close to the PM, if not the PM himself, his closest advisors knew there was a problem with Jonathan Vance. If they didn't know that, they weren't looking. And there was, there is evidence, in fact, that Minister Harjit uh, Sajjan uh, well, I can't understand why he's still the defense minister, but he is. I mean, he, he was, you know, asked to look into these things and said, no, I don't want to see it. And I mean, he made the argument. I mean, there is some merit in the argument that as an elected politician minister, um, you know, he, he shouldn't be mucking about in, in personnel matters and things like that. Okay. But what he could have done was say to his officials, go and deal with this the right way and stay with it until it's sorted out. And that's what he didn't do. And I think that's also what the prime minister didn't do. Uh, meanwhile, you have these allegations swirling around, um, which every day bring the upper reaches of the military leadership into further disrepute. They increase uncertainty among the members of the military, especially um, you know women and, uh, and others who are affected by this type of policy gap. And uh, it, it just to allow it goes to go on just makes it worse by the day. And uh, the Trudeau government's responses to this are pathetic and unbelievable. And and at some point, they're going to have to you know burn down that defense and move on, or else it's just going to carry on with them into the next election. All right. And finally, what do you think should be the consequences for a couple of politicians? Uh, one federal. MP, the former uh, leadership candidate for the Conservatives, Derek Sloan, and one provincial member of parliament in Ontario who defied the guidelines and attended a large gathering, and they've now been charged uh, as a result. Yeah, well, you know, I think the people in those districts around Kingston who elected Derek Sloan to parliament and Randy Hillier to uh, Queen's Park uh, really have to think about this. I mean, obviously, they're, they're publicly elected people. They can say what they want, go where they want, but they shouldn't, at the same time, be allowed to defy public safety orders and the way that they did by attending this religious uh, service. Um, 
I don't think religion needs any special protection in our society, frankly, Mark. And uh, to claim that a public uh, political protest uh, is a religious thing is just sophistry and uh, and uh, you know a, a, a straw man of an argument. Uh, these guys should face the same consequences that anyone else would face when defying public uh, safety things. I mean, would you allow them during the Blitz to shine spotlights from a church? when the German bombers are overhead. Well, no. You know, I mean, the rules are there to protect everyone, including these guys and their families and their, you know, their communities. And if they are not willing to understand that, uh, there must be ways of making them understand it. I don't know about sending them to jail would work, as satisfying as that might be. But uh, what they're doing now is spreading a poisonous lie uh, that um, that these measures don't work and, and virtually that the pandemic is little more than a, uh, a cold. And, um, you know, there should be consequences. And, and I hope someday the voters in those areas will wake up and realize these guys are incredibly poor representatives of the public interest and treat them that way at the voting booth. All right, Dan, great to hear your thoughts on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Okay, Mark, thanks for the call. That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. We've all seen the heartbreaking news from hospitals in India that are unable to keep up with the number of patients. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Tasha Keridan argues Canadian politicians should learn from India's COVID-19 mistakes. Keridan writes, India's tragedy is what happens when leaders put politics before public health. Canada is currently in the grips of a third wave. Our leaders are faced with hard choices. No one likes lockdowns. No one likes restrictions on freedoms. Politicians are loath to anger their base and instead of doing the unpopular thing, tiptoe around the margins or reverse course midstream. But as India shows, without those unpopular decisions, Things can quickly spiral out of control. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason argues COVID-19 has exposed Alberta as Canada's other distinct society. Mason writes, Jason Kenney is facing serious backlash within his party, not for failing to take serious enough action to halt the virus, but for taking measures viewed as too restrictive. The path that Alberta is now on will mean that the pandemic will continue to be an ugly, painful, and drawn-out affair, the kind of ending that people never forget. If you ever needed evidence that Quebec isn't the only distinct society in Canada, this may be it. In the Toronto Star, Sylvain Charlebois considers the rising cost of living. Charlebois writes, Along with higher interest rates, inflation is likely to become one of this year's biggest business stories and food prices will not be immune to what is happening. The problem is that we will need to cope with another economic double whammy, higher housing costs and a weaker job market. The good news is that our inflation rate will go up, which is exactly what we need to see for interest rates to go up. This may not be a super cycle as experienced before, but it certainly will make things complicated for the rest of the year. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. Later today, MPs will begin debate on the Trudeau government's back-to-work legislation to end the strike in the Port of Montreal. 
CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, at some time after question period this afternoon, the Trudeau government will table and debate will begin on its back-to-work legislation. The government argues that the economic disruption and the cost to the Canadian economy in a time of such pandemic distress cannot be contemplated, and that the two parties must be forced back to work with some form of mediation or arbitration. The Bloc Québécois and the NDP have both expressed fierce opposition, both to the motion from the House of Commons, which will set out how this debate will unfold, as well as to the back-to-work legislation, as a matter of principle. They argue that the parties weren't given sufficient chance to come to a negotiated settlement and that the collective bargaining process is being trampled on. Nonetheless, the motion says that the entire bill will be dealt with in a single sitting following the tabling of the bill. It will go from first reading all the way to a final vote in about five or six hours. So if both Liberals and Conservatives support the bill, which is more or less expected, we will see some form of back-to-work legislation passed late in the evening or maybe in the early hours of the morning. The only question is, Mark, to what extent the NDP and the Bloc Québécois might be able to use procedural tactics to delay, stall, or block the proceedings. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will attend the Liberal caucus meeting and question period before he and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland take part in a virtual town hall with youth from across the country. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet will hold a news conference in Ottawa. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will speak with the media after the NDP's virtual caucus meeting. He will also attend a virtual commemorative event hosted by the Manitoba Federation of Labour and take part in a celebration to mark Sikh Heritage Month in Manitoba. Middle-class prosperity minister Mona Fortier will take part in a virtual event hosted by the Quebec Industrial Parks Corporation. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will participate in a virtual infrastructure event in Prescott, Ontario. And the Minister for Women, Mariam Monsef, will host a roundtable with post-secondary student leaders from the Golden Horseshoe. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, April 28th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.